All right, we're going to be looking at Philippians 2. And we're going to read verses 5 through 11. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. But this week we're focusing on verses 9 through 11. So let's give our attention to God's Word. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers, the flowers fade away, but the word of God stands forever. So let's pray before we, uh, we look at it further tonight. Heavenly Father, you are, you are good. You are a good God and you reveal yourself. You speak to us. And you do that through your word. And so tonight we ask, like we do every week, that you would, that you would allow us to hear your word. That by your Holy Spirit you would be here and that you would uh, unclog our ears. That you would quicken our minds and our hearts so that we might hear what you would have us to. That we might see you in your grace and your mercy. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you're into sports like I am, uh, you know that discussions about, about who is the greatest abound. They happen all the time. I listen to a, a fair amount, I won't say how much, a fair amount of sports talk radio, and the conversations are, are almost endless about who is the greatest, the greatest of all time, the greatest this season. You know, is Steph Curry the greatest basketball player on the planet? Is he better than LeBron? Is he the best of all time? Is he the greatest of all time? Or maybe it's a little early for that. Is he, is he the greatest shooter, at least, of all time? You talk about quarterbacks a lot for some reason. Uh, is Joe Montana the greatest quarterback of all time? He, w- he was undefeated in Super Bowls, went to four Super Bowls and won them all. Maybe it's Tom Brady. He went to six Super so far, has been to six Super Bowls, but only, quote, won four of them. Somehow that's held against him. Uh, can you throw Peyton Manning in that conversation of greatest, even though his postseason is not, very, uh, not as uh, you know, illustrious as the other guys? In baseball, the discussion gets complicated because of PEDs. That's performance-enhancing drugs, if you're not into that. Uh, championships don't really matter for some reason in baseball, and so who's the greatest is just a little bit more convoluted discussion. But the debate is at least interesting because it's, it's a hard call. You can make an argument, a reasonable argument, you know, a lot of different ways. And so people, people argue about it all the time. And so when it comes to sports, it's debatable. And while I would like to think that Paul, the Apostle Paul, actually probably would jump into some of those arguments with you. I think, I think he was probably into sports from some of the references he makes in Scripture. Mike could gather that. Doesn't matter. But if you'll allow me this. When it comes to what you worship, when it comes to the subject of of God, when it comes to the subject of Lord, 
Paul says there, there is no debate. There's not even a close second as to who the greatest is. He says Jesus is the greatest of all time. There's no reason to debate. Jesus is the greatest, in a sense, everything. And while that might sound a, a little, I don't know, cheesy, maybe a little obvious, I think if you'll stick with us tonight, I think you might see that we actually end up making that debate a little more interesting than it ought to be. So you know this semester we're studying through this letter, Philippians, letter that Paul wrote to this church. And it's a letter that's filled with joy. Paul writes them and he talks about the joy that he has in Christ and the joy that he wants them to have in Christ. And this week, we see that Paul tells us about the joy of Jesus' exaltation. In other words, last week we saw he talked about uh, Jesus' humility, his humiliation. And this week we're focusing on the part where Paul looks at, he basically says, look how great Jesus is, how great God has made him in his exaltation. He's the greatest. And so I want to look at that along three lines. We're going to see, hopefully I want you to see tonight, that because Jesus is Lord, because Jesus reigns, we have the greatest, first, we have the greatest outcome. And we'll try to explain what that means. Secondly, because Jesus is Lord, we have the greatest Lord you can have. And thirdly and finally, we'll see that because Jesus reigns, we have the greatest Savior. Okay? All right, so first, because Jesus reigns, because he's on the throne, because he's exalted, the greatest outcome possible. So look, basically, this may not be the best title for this point. Forgive me. Basically, this is kind of the general idea that Paul is getting at in, in this passage, and our next two points kind of support that. Uh, Verse 9, you see what Paul says. He says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, you've probably heard it said, if you've been around church, you've probably heard it said that when you come to a passage uh, and if if you see a therefore, you need to stop and ask, what's the therefore, therefore, right? And while, you know, maybe that's a little, little goofy, but it's actually a pretty good rule. And here it certainly applies. So Paul... We're jumping in the middle, in a sense, uh, in the middle of Paul's argument. So what does he mean when he says, therefore? You've got to remember what we, we read it tonight, but what we talked about last week. Paul's in the middle of encouraging these Philippians and, and us. He says, look, you have, as believers, you have to be unified. You have to be together with one another. And to do that, you have to be humble. You have to consider other people more significant, more important than yourselves. He implores us to be, he implores us to humility. And so, and then he goes on to give the, uh, the supreme example of Jesus' humility, of how he came to this earth and how he came as a, as a man, right, as a baby, and what we walked through last week. And so right after that, he says that he was humbled to the point, even to the point of death, death on a cross, And so, sort of right at the lowest imaginable point, the most humble point you can imagine, after Paul takes us there, he says, therefore, he says, therefore, God has exalted him. 
So what's Paul talking about? What does it mean that he exalted him? Well, he's talking about, you know, the word means like lifted up, right? He's talking about Jesus' resurrection, God raising him up from the dead. He's talking about Jesus' ascension, when Jesus ascending, going up into heaven in front of his disciples. And he's talking about what we call Jesus' session. The fact that Jesus right now, right then when he wrote it and still right now, that Jesus is reigning on the throne. He's at the right hand of God. He's talking about all of that. It's, it's basically this idea, Paul's saying, that God has lifted him up. He has lifted up Jesus to show how great he really is. To show off his greatness. You know, we do it, we really do it all the time if you think about it. If somebody wins a trophy, often, you know, maybe all the time, what do they do? They, they typically hold it up. You hold it up. Uh, if a lot of times you see when a team wins, what do they do with their coach besides pour Gatorade on him or one of the star players? They, a lot of times they'll lift him up and put him on their shoulders and carry him around, right? Lift it up. You know, the president or a king might sit in a, in a chair that's, that's elevated above everybody else. You get the idea. It shows how great something is. And so, but Paul doesn't just say that God has exalted him. He actually says that, that God has, well, we've translated how highly exalted him. It's one Greek word that it seems like Paul has made up. He basically took the word exalted and put hyper on the front of it, which is something Paul does pretty frequently. He says, God has hyper exalted Jesus, that he has shown him to be, he hasn't made Jesus more glorious than he was, but he has shown him to be in a class all by himself. Not just somewhat greater than other things, but he's lifted him up, shown him to be the greatest. And how much so? What's the extent of that greatness? The text says that he, that he gives him the name that is above every name. So what name is that? There's some debate about it, but I think it's, it's somewhat straightforward. Uh, God has exalted Jesus to the degree of giving him his name. Of giving him the name Lord. Right, when you see that in the Bible, you, you might know this, or maybe not. Uh, when you see it, in, now granted it doesn't reflect that way in this text, but often you'll see L-O-R-D in all capitals, but they're smaller capitals. It's the, it's the way we translate the word Yahweh. It's God's, it's God's covenant name. It's, it's the name of the glorious God, the almighty God in covenant with his people. We think that the translation, it seems to be related to the to be verb in Hebrew. That basically his name means something like, I am what I am. Right? How deep is that? That his name is just, I am. I am what? I am everything. It's the name that, it's so glorious. Right, when, if you remember when Moses says, God, uh, you know, Exodus 33, 34, says, God, show me your glory. And God tells him, I'm going to set you in the, in the cleft of a rock, also known as a cave. I'm going to put you in a cave. And he says, I'm going to allow my glory to pass by you. But basically, or he, rather, he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to pass by you and I will proclaim my name before you. He basically identifies, equates his glory with his name, Yahweh. 
And how glorious was it? So glorious that Moses' face was shining from having been in its presence. We get glimpses of it in the New Testament, especially from John, that Jesus takes this up and, and understands himself in that way. You know, the uh, I am sayings of Jesus. Uh, one of my favorite, when they come to arrest Jesus, and they be- he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am. And the text says, go back and read it, that when he said his name, that they, that they, uh, that they fell back and fell to the ground. And doesn't really care to explain it. But just at the... At, The power of his name, it caused the people that came to arrest him to hit the ground. And Paul tells us here, well, let me say this. Yes, Jesus has always been God. He has always been equal with God the Father. But after his death, after his resurrection, Paul's telling us that God vindicates Jesus. That he shows him to be and gives him the, the glory and the authority that he has always had and deserved. Does that make sense? He's not adding something to him necessarily. He's proving him to be, showing him to be the absolute greatest. Alright, so what does that mean for us? Let's begin to try to piece some of this together. Why would Paul be telling them this? Well, we said that Paul called believers to be humble. And it's almost like you could imagine these Philippians thinking, uh, all right, so how is this whole humility thing going to work? What's the outcome? Right? In a sense, it feels like the opposite. You're calling me to be humble. It doesn't seem to make sense. It seems to be counterintuitive. It feels ridiculous, right? How does, how does me considering others better than myself, where is that going to lead me? And it's like Paul saying, do, do you want to know the outcome of this? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know where humility leads you, in a sense? Look. Because, remember, he says, therefore. He talks about how how humble Jesus was. And he says, therefore, because Jesus was so humble, because he so selflessly laid aside his glory, therefore, God exalted him. And now look, it's not that it's it's a reward in the sense that that Jesus sort of had some leverage against God. Or that we would, if you're humble enough, then you you sort of uh, kind of paint God in a corner. And you're humble enough and he owes you glory. But the point... What God is showing us is that the humility is the greatness. Does that make sense? It's not a a reward system necessarily, though I think God does reward humility. But what he's doing is showing that that Jesus' greatness is his humility. His humility is what's great about him. Because the humility doesn't stop, right? You even see that in the passage. That ultimately all of this, in a sense, for Jesus is what? For the glory of the Father. But the humility is the greatness. Think about Here's what I mean. Think about how much harder it is, how much greater it is to lay down your strength that you might have in some regard for someone else. How much harder that is, how much greater that is, than just displaying and using the strength for yourself. 
Think about it like this. I think I've used this illustration before, but hey, we'll go with it. Imagine if, if the Hunger Games were, were real, and we decided to do that in the United States. So you got every state, you know, you draw numbers, whatever they did it, right? And every state has a representative. And we drop them, with 50 people we drop off in like Yellowstone Park, and we can watch it all. Good luck. Whoever comes out alive, last one standing wins. And so imagine you've got one of those 50 happens to be a Navy SEAL in the prime of his career. And you got 49 other just people. Now, if you watch, like, so you, if you've seen the movies or whatever, you know, like, you can, you can watch everything. It would actually be, now look, this is morbid, I get that. But it would actually be pretty impressive. It would be great. Like, it was, you would see his greatness. It would be impressive to watch him take care of those 49 other people. Which he would without too much problem. It'd be pretty impressive. But how much greater would it be if one of those other, what, 49, was like a a five-year-old girl? And instead of using his strength and showing how great he is by using his strength, what he did for himself, what he did was use his strength to protect this girl, take care of all 48 other people, And then get rid of himself to save that girl. How much greater would that story be? Right? You get the picture. That's so much harder to do. It shows so much more strength. The laying down of the strength is the greatness. All right, so what does all that mean? Basically, I think what you begin to see is that, gosh, a ton of things, but just for now, that the kingdom of God is backwards from the way the world works. Better way to say that. The world is backwards from the way the kingdom of God works, from the way reality works. Because what does the world tell us? The world tells us to maximize our resources. The world tells you and me to to maximize your, your good looks or your money or your talent Uh, your personality, your freedom, your rights, whatever it is, maximize those things and use them for yourself. And that's what greatness looks like. The people that are the funniest, the wealthiest, you know, the best looking, those are the great people. But in the kingdom of God, in, in reality, it's actually the opposite. That what greatness looks like is using those resources for other people. Laying down your glory, so to speak. But, but the problem is it doesn't feel like that. right? It feels like, feels like death to, to lay down your glory for someone else. It feels like the opposite. How can any... What's the outcome of that? And Paul is saying, look at Jesus. What's the outcome? Jesus is the greatest. That's where humility in a sense, leads. So, all right, we see that uh, the, the greatest outcome, we're going to have to keep moving quickly. Secondly, we see because Jesus is Lord, because he is exalted, we have the greatest Lord. Verse 10 and 11, first part of 11 says this, so that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And look, what, what I want you to see here 
is that because God has exalted Jesus, because he has lifted him up, Jesus is in charge of everything. Jesus reigns supreme over absolutely everything that is. There is nothing outside of his control. So where do we see that? You see, it says that every person, and it seems to include every, every being, uh, every heavenly, every angel, every demon, every person that has or will ever live, uh, those in heaven, on earth, under the earth, everybody, everything, that ultimately everything will bow to his authority. Now this actually, it's actually a quote. Paul's quoting from Isaiah. Isaiah 45, 23. And we're going to come back to this again in a minute. But So what's Isaiah doing? Paul's quoting this section from Isaiah. In Isaiah 40 to 48, it's basically, you could say, it's, it's, it's sort of God versus other gods. It's, it's Isaiah showing or God showing how he is better than or really the only true God. Better than any other God you might make up. That he's the, only, he's the one and only true God. And so 45, 23 says this. By, this is God speaking. By myself I have sworn from, from my mouth has gone out in, in righteousness a word that shall not return. And here's the word that will not return void. To me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. And in the next verse in Isaiah he goes on to make it clear that he's talking about everyone. Those that love him and bow the knee willingly, and those that don't. He talks about uh, even those that are incensed against him will come uh, and be ashamed. Do you see what he's saying? God in the Old Testament, Yahweh is saying, I am the only God. And everything and everyone will bow to me. I, I, am, I am supreme over everything. And Paul takes this takes that passage and says, that's true of Jesus. Jesus is the supreme Lord over everything. And one day, he reigns supreme over everyone and everything right now, and one day that rule will be evidenced that those that love him will bow and even those that don't. Right, so how, how will those that... Because there's some debate. People say, like, well, is this talking about just believers? But... How can it be people that don't love him? How will they bow the knee? How can, how can they say this confession, so to speak? It doesn't mean that they want to. I thought about it like this. You've no doubt seen the movie or the TV show where there's the bank robbery scene and the bad guy comes in and he, he, uh, he looks at the bank president and he says, Who, who's in charge here? And the bank president says, I am. And he shoots him. And then he looks at the next guy and he says, who's in charge here? And the guy says, you are. Right? You get the point. Now look, forgive the fact that I'm paralleling God with the bad guy. But you get the point. That guy does not like the fact that he has the power. He doesn't like the fact that he has to submit to this guy. Their agendas are different. Right? But he still does. He's still under his authority. And now look, if right now you're thinking, look, that's exactly... Why, I don't, why I'm not into this Christianity stuff. It's exactly that kind of God that basically says, you're going to love me or else. If that's what you're thinking, I understand that. I want you to, don't, don't lose me yet, okay? We're going to come back to that. 
But the point is that Jesus who came in absolute humility is exalted by God and he reigns supreme over everything. So what does that mean for us? What does that matter? Well, it means that the kingdom of God is advancing. It is advancing, whether it seems like it or not. Jesus is in charge. He is on the throne right now, reigning, even though it may not feel like it. And so look, if you're a, if you're a believer, that brings us great confidence. It should bring you great encouragement. Because look, here... It's easy to look around, let's just take the world, it's easy to look around the world and wonder what's going on. Maybe, maybe God's asleep at the wheel at best. Maybe evil is in charge. Maybe, maybe there's nobody in charge. Because if you look at the news, what, what do you, you see? You know, school shootings and, and cop shootings, uh, abuse of power, corruption, terrorism, you know, on and on. You look around this world and you think, who are the bad guys winning? Is evil going to win? You might look around your own life. And you might look at your life and see, see that your, your family's splitting up. Or you might look at your life and you might see like that your Christian your, your church is, is sort of falling apart. Or your career path is, is, seems to be crumbling right in front of you. And you might think, is, is evil winning? Is God asleep at the wheel? And I want you to see that this text, Paul is saying, absolutely not. That you can know that Jesus right now is on his throne. And he rules over everything. There is nothing outside of his control. And it fits with the theme of humility. Right? Like we said earlier, if you're, if you're a humble... If you pursue humbleness, you're going to feel like, or if you consider other people as more important than yourselves, and, and you, you, you give, give up, in a sense, right? Give things for other people. You're going to feel out of control. And the reason you're going to feel like that is because you are. But the good news is that you're, you're not in control, never have been, but Jesus is. He's on the throne right now. And that's good news. All right, thirdly and finally, uh, we see that because Jesus reigns, we have the greatest Savior. We have the greatest Savior. All right, so like I said earlier, if you were thinking like, all right, look, that's exactly what I don't like about Christianity. Uh, that, that sense of how God, you know, even his enemies will be forced to submit to him. Um, you know, that, that God basically is like, love me or else, right? Kind of with the gun pointed at you. Uh, I, I, want you to see, I want you to see this point. And I think you'll see that, that that's not the kind of God that God is. All right, so basically, let's go back to Isaiah 40, uh, 45. So in Isaiah 45, God is showing that he is better than all the other gods, right? He's making that point. Uh, 45.18 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. And then he basically addresses all of the nations, in other words, not Israel, uh, the other people, the idol worshipers, people that worship, you know, who knows what. And uh, he says to them in verse 20, assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. 
they have no knowledge, who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. You know, he basically says, look, all you idol worship, you worship something else, come, gather up, let's talk. You know, you worship something that's not real. It can't do anything for you. It can't answer your prayer. Uh, and then he says, uh, he basically says, look, I've been telling you this all along. Here it is, uh, verse 21 and 22. And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. You see what God says, look, your God can't save you. And so he doesn't say, look, you're worshiping something else? Fine, watch this, zap. He says, I've been telling you all along, it cannot save you. I can and I will come to me. And who does he address that to? The good people? No, everybody. He invites any and everybody, come to me. And in the end, he says uh, in verse uh, 25, I think 25, yeah. He says, in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. He says, you'll find glory. And Paul takes, remember, Paul, so Paul basically takes that and he says, that's true of Jesus. That Jesus is the greatest Savior there is. That same God from the Old Testament, that, that's Jesus. He is the one thing that can save you. The one and only. He's the greatest. He's not the the best of a a long list. So what does that mean for us? Let's finish with this. Here's the deal. You, You and I, every one of us, we all look to something to be our Savior. We all look to something to 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 save us. Save us from Save us from our guilt. Save us from our um, anonymity. Make something out of me. Make sense of my life. And that's built into us. We all try to worship something. But the problem is that you and I default to finding that in any and everything else other than God. That's, That's the natural bent of our hearts, is to go to anything else other than God and to look to it and say, save me. Make sense of my life. And the problem is that nothing else can do it. So maybe it's your grades. I know we talk about this a lot, but your grade, you know, they seem to offer up salvation to you. They seem to hold out and say, look, if you have me, if you make good grades, then you'll have what you want. You'll be somebody. You'll get the job that you want. Or uh, it'll be the way that you can kind of make a name for yourself. If you give everything to me, then I'll bless you. But the problem is that grades aren't personal. They don't care about you. They can't answer your prayers. And when you fail them, they don't extend grace. They're not designed to. They can't. All grades makes you do is work harder. Keep it up. And if you fail or if you stop, there's only curse. Look, making good grades is a good thing. It's just a terrible savior. It's like drinking salt water to try to, uh, to quench your thirst. It seems like it's working, like it tastes good, right? But all it does is make you thirstier and thirstier, you find. It's like scratching poison ivy. It, it feels good. It seems to be relieving the itch, but all it's doing is making the problem worse. 
And everything else is the same way. Having a boyfriend or a girlfriend's good, but they're a terrible savior. Being popular or well-liked, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing, but it's a terrible savior. Because you always have to work. You always have to be a little cooler, a little funnier, a little whatever. And when you fail, there's only curse. And you can plug in money, sex, your job, your fraternity, sorority, anything. But the good news is that Jesus humbled himself. The good news is that you do have a Savior that can save you, that's held out to you. And he's not just a Savior, he's the greatest one because he actually saves people. Because Jesus accomplished what we can't. Right? He's the Savior that you can actually come and say, make sense of me, save me. And he will because when you fail, what do you find? It's actually, it's actually only when you come to him humble and in your failure, you don't find curse, then and only then do you actually find blessing. Jesus does not look at you and say, yeah, I know you're sorry, but I, I've said this to people before, much to my shame. Yeah, I don't care that you're sorry, just don't do it again. But Jesus does not look at you and say, I know you're sorry, but just stop. He offers grace. He's the Savior that says, uh, that says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, also translated as humble, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he also, this is the same Savior that says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so look, I want you to see tonight that there is good news in Christ, in Jesus' exaltation. That you can even begin to find joy there because He is the greatest. And He's offered to you tonight. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, You are the greatest. Our minds cannot even catch up to the fullness of what that means. But, what, but You have been good to reveal, some, reveal it to us. Would You grow us? Would You expand our hearts and minds to begin to see that You... Jesus, are the greatest. You're the only one that can save us, and you're the only one that truly loves us. And we embrace that, and we ask it in your name. Amen.